nature is so interesting and diverse, if we ignore the nocturnal half, we're ignoring too much of the rest of nature. Mm. And so we don't want to just let it be, oh, I saw a hummingbird, that's lovely. You know, or I saw a flower, that's lovely. But how about the other kinds of things that are out? Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever wondered what happens each night after the shadows get longer and the sun dips beneath the horizon. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking with Charles Hood, whose voice you just heard, about the things that go bump in the night are actually things that flutter, flap, tread softly, swim, or bloom in the night. Because there's a whole nocturnal world out there that most of us are missing. And it's not actually as hard or as scary as we might think to go out and see it for ourselves. And I was waiting until October to record this spooky season interview, but I'm very excited to tell you that now that this one is recorded, all of season three of Golden State Naturalist is fully recorded. I have eight more finished interviews after this one that I'm working on turning into episodes on things like California condors, seaweed, and native bees. So make sure to follow the podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying Golden State Naturalist and want to see the show grow and thrive and reach more people, I would so appreciate it if you considered becoming part of the GSN Patreon community for as little as $4 a month. For that $4, you get access to video and audio extras from the show, which there will be some of for this episode, and you gain access to the patrons-only book club. Each month, we vote on and read fascinating books about things like coyotes or birds or moss and the way humans interact with those organisms. And then we talk about them with such a good group of human beings who are deeply invested in this beautiful blue dot we all call home. That $4 a month membership helps more than you know, and I'm grateful for every single person supporting the show, because it would not be possible without you. If you'd like to become part of that community or just lend your support to the show, you can find me at patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. You can also rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. I cherish every single review and I'm thankful to every single person who's left one and made my whole day. Leaving reviews and sharing your favorite episode with a friend are both ways that help the podcast climb up the podcast charts, which helps more people discover the show, which makes me not only super happy, but also helps more people learn about this beautiful earth we live on and find out how we collectively can give back to it and be a positive, enriching part of nature. If you want to see what my face looks like, hear my various nature musings or observations, or follow along on my outdoor adventures, you can find me at Golden State Naturalist on both Instagram and TikTok. My website is goldenstatenaturalist.com, which is where you can find podcast merch like sweatshirts to bundle up in for your next nocturnal adventures. But now let's get to the episode. Charles Hood has been a factory worker, a ski instructor, a dishwasher, and a nature guide in Africa. He later went on to receive an MFA in poetry from UC Irvine, studying under Charles Wright and Louise Glick. He's published 19 books, including Wild Sonoma, with a foreword by Jane Goodall, and A Salad Only the Devil Would Eat, which was named the nonfiction book of the year by the editors of Forward Book Review. Earlier, his book Wild LA, which is in its fourth printing, was named a nonfiction book of the year by the California Association of Independent Booksellers. Charles is an accomplished birder and experienced world traveler. And Nature Study has taken him across all 50 states and to 80 countries, from New Guinea to Borneo to the South Pole. During these journeys, Charles has encountered 5,000 species of birds and over 1,000 species of mammals. Along the way, he's been lost in a whiteout in Tibet, contracted and survived the bubonic plague, and published over 700 photographs. 
He's currently working on a book of essays about seabirds, a limited edition photography collection, and an article about mink coats. His new book, Nocturnalia, comes out on Halloween. So without further ado, let's hear from Charles Hood on Golden State Naturalist. Charles Hood in early October at the Kasumnas River Preserve in Galt, California, about 20 miles south of Sacramento. When I arrived, the sun was still up, but it wouldn't be for long. Birders and hikers were making their way back to their cars, packing up binoculars, saying goodbye to friends, and driving off before the gates could be locked and their cars forfeited to the lot for the night. I got more than a few curious glances at this point, as mine was the only car driving into the lot rather than out of it at this hour. Maybe my fellow nature enthusiasts thought my turn-of-the-century Corolla puttered in for some nefarious purpose. Or maybe they wanted to give me a friendly warning about the gate policy and keep me from getting stuck. But they never got the chance to express either thought. Because as I pulled into a space, Charles, who had arrived earlier, was already flinging open the door of his car and making his way over to welcome me. After we'd said hello and I'd moved my car to the street, I jumped into the passenger seat of Charles's car. We still had a little time before sunset, and we set out in search of some sandhill cranes Charles had seen earlier in the day. The light is just fabulous as it, as it hits. We're getting into that golden hour, so there's a flooded field here that's reflecting the blue sky and the golden lights coming from behind us because we're driving east. We saw a lot of birds. Oh, these are dowagers, and greater yellow legs, and lesser yellow legs, and some shovelers, and some killdeer. We also saw plenty of Canada geese, red-winged blackbirds, egrets, and a group of large, low-flying birds. Those are all sandhill cranes. All those big birds on that, yeah, they're at 2 o'clock, heading towards 3 o'clock. Where are you going, little birds? I think they are. (laughs) What if they're all geese? That would be really funny, because they're going with the other geese. Maybe they were geese the whole time. I think they transmogrified. I didn't realize this. The birds flew out of sight, so we were never able to tell for sure. But I like to think that they were sandhill cranes which come to the Central Valley for winter. And if you're having a hard time visualizing these birds, they look a little like great blue herons. But the Cornell Lab of Ornithology says sandhill cranes are more uniformly gray, and the adults have a vivid red crown that the great blue herons don't have. They also fly with their necks outstretched, which the great blue herons don't do. They tuck their necks. One of the things that makes seeing these birds so special is that sandhill cranes were once down to fewer than five breeding pairs in the Central Valley. They've made quite a comeback from that low bar, but according to Audubon, California, these birds could be doing a lot better. Audubon points out that recovery of the population is hindered by a lack of directed conservation, despite the potential for habitat restoration and farmland management that could greatly benefit this population. So that sucks. But there's still a good chance you could see them this winter, and maybe not too far from where you live if you're in California. Also, please do yourself a favor and watch a YouTube video of their courtship dance. But as we drove the roads of the preserve admiring the birds, the sun started to sink a little lower on the horizon. In the golden light, Charles and I knew that we were about to watch the world change entirely. And it looked like we were going to be the only ones present to witness it. And the great thing about being out at the end of the day is everybody else is going home. And the preserves are emptying out. Mm -hmm. And as we know, because I asked earlier, it's legal to be here after hours, even though the parking lot closes. They don't mind pedestrians. So suddenly you end up with a nature preserve that's all just for you. 
As everyone else was leaving, Charles and I parked along the road and walked into the preserve to see what was stirring and to discuss vampire bats, night-blooming native plants, what's going on in the ocean at night, and so much more. All of that after a quick break. Today on Golden State Naturalist, we're talking nocturnal nature with Charles Hood. We're picking up where we left off during Golden Hour. But if we look to the west, the sunlight's coming through the bottom of that oak tree and through the willows, and it's just absolutely magnificent golden refracted light. Not sunburning me, not giving me skin cancer, yes. not making me squint. <laughs> and as Charles and I entered the preserve, crossing a wooden bridge over a slough and into an open field bordered by oak, cottonwood, and willow trees, we found that we had the place completely to ourselves. Or at least, we were the only humans in sight. Because this late afternoon, early evening time is a particularly active one for wildlife, like the rabbit we saw under the oaks, and the turkeys we stopped to watch roaming the preserve. And it's fun to see them coming out. It's a little bit later from our earlier conversation, so the sun's really going to kiss the horizon pretty fast here, and so it's getting to be sort of dusky here inside the preserve. And the turkeys feel safe enough to start coming out at dusk, apparently, because I was here earlier and there weren't any turkeys anywhere, mm. and they were out on the road and they're here. So presumably they're worried about being predated by bobcats, I assume. But these are not native. They were introduced from the East Coast. This is a native North American bird, but not native to California. So introduced for hunting purposes, as was the case often. So I don't think they cause any mayhem or harm to anybody that I'm aware of. They're just out doing their thing. They seem more traceable to dinosaurs than do. Yes, they do. They, 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 <laughs> but, but, but the nice kind of, not the kind that eat you in the movies. Right. <laughs> These are the nice, pleasant kind of dinosaurs. Okay, I had to look this up and Charles is right. There are no long-term studies showing negative ecological impacts by wild turkeys. But according to a blog by Scientific American, they might be causing harm. And some scientists think they are. But the question just hasn't been studied appropriately because adequate funding and attention haven't been given to the issue. Also, while these current turkeys aren't native to California, there used to be native turkeys here. They were a little smaller than the turkeys we have now, and their bones are actually the second most common bird bones found in the La Brea tar pits in Los Angeles which I did an episode about, so make sure to check that out if you want to know about Ice Age California and pygmy mammoths. Anyways, these smaller native turkeys went extinct, and no one is sure why, but it could have been due to a decrease in rainfall and vegetation. I'll link that blog post in the show notes in case you want to learn more about California turkey ecology. Okay, but Charles said that the turkeys probably felt safest coming out at dusk. What is that called? So creatures that are most active at dawn and dusk, like these modern-day avian dinosaurs, are called crepuscular, rather than nocturnal, like those active at night, or diurnal, like the daytime critters. And fun fact, dawn and dusk are great times to go to the zoo and to go outside to spot wildlife, because a lot of animals are crepuscular. Next, we followed a path across a wooden bridge that led us into a bit of forest that looked decked out for Halloween. All around us, what looked like cobwebs drooped from bare twigs. And I'm very taken with these. Is this cottonwood like fluff or is this spider webs? Yeah, you're asking what the dander is because yeah, the trees in this little section, it's almost like a hobbit, Lord of the Rings kind of yeah, forest it is kind of thing. Very... It's a mix of cottonwood dander and willows actually give off oh, a lot of okay, dander yeah. too. And they are adhering to scraps of lichen and perhaps a little scrap of, of spider web as well. 
So it's this sort of gossamer fluff is a mixture of ingredients. It's good October ambiance for sure. Well, yes, it's very, you know, that people put that shredded spider webby oh, stuff yeah. on their houses, but they could just come here and get the real stuff for, for free. And, 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 right, and help propagate willow and cottonwood trees. By the way, that fake spiderweb stuff ensnares wildlife and kills lots of birds, reptiles, and insects every October. So if you have a willow or cottonwood tree nearby, you can artfully place the fluff around your yard or just stick to the many other creepy decoration options available to you. At this point, the sun had set and last light wasn't far off. Charles and I were almost ready to sit down in the dark for our interview, but there was one thing we wanted to do first. Let's try for the bats. We'll yeah, walk back to go. that other bridge. It's starting to get a little darker now. So I know Miguel Ordenana talked about bats when he was on the podcast with mm -hmm. you in season two. Can I just say, Charles went above and beyond while preparing for this interview. He was familiar with basically every topic I've covered before on the podcast and made sure to talk about different stuff. So even though we talk about bats again here, it doesn't overlap very much with the other episode. I aspire to that level of preparedness. And if you do want to go back and listen to the other episode with bats at some point, it's part two of the urban ecology episodes with Miguel Ordignana, who's shown a very surprising quantity and diversity of bats in urban LA. So I'll just kind of remind the listeners real quick. In North America, we're sort of in that 45, 47 species. California is about 25 species. And so we think you know, places like Los Angeles, that's Hades. You know, Los Angeles and Hades are one, you know, they're just <laughs> different off ramps on the same freeway. And yet, as Miguel is proving, there are bats throughout Los Angeles in the most urban areas mm. that these passive detectors are showing up. And they do live under bridges in the, in the thousands. Even in urban Los Angeles, there are Yuma bats and Mexican freetail bats living where the 605 freeway crosses the 210, for example. There's about 2,000 bats under that bridge. So bats are actually all around us in a really interesting, diverse assemblage. And so San Francisco, I'm gonna give you a number, I'm gonna say 14 species in kind of this Bay Area. I'm, I might be off by two or three, but mm -hmm. I'm certainly more than 10 and less than 20. And hey, isn't that pretty cool? That's amazing. So we will remind our listeners, 1% of the bats out there might have rabies. Mm -hmm. In my case, I've had my rabies shot, so when I handle bats, I'm in pretty good shape. Mm -hmm. But if you find a bat falling up that's on the ground, foaming, and writhing around, don't pick it up. Here's, we've got, this is nature chip. You're so glad you listened to this podcast. You get these really essential nature chips. You never chips. would have known that otherwise. <laughs> yeah, right. If it's acting really strange, don't pick it up. And when you look at the statistics of how people get rabies, it's from dogs, yeah. raccoons, foxes, possums. Like the bats are never the problem. There's more rabies information in the second urban ecology episode too, but Miguel and I met up during the day in Griffith Park. So we didn't actually get to see any bats while we talked about them. Going to a wildlife preserve at dark in an area with a bunch of mosquitoes and moths flying around was a very different story. Most bats, but not all, most bats are hunting at using their echolocation at frequencies far beyond the human range of hearing. And mm -hmm. so what we do is we use a little a microphone that plugs into an iPhone, and it's literally just called a bat detector, and one of these classic, it is what it is. And they're a little bit expensive, but uh, they also have them for both Android and for, for iPhones. And mm -hmm. it translates the bat calls to a range of sound that is audible to humans, oh, cool. and then makes a sonogram, and you can record it, and then it'll give you an identification and you could also then cross-reference that identification with computer software. So in the magic of radio, a little bit of time has elapsed and it's getting darker. Oh, I'm holding the microphone up to the microphone. <laughs> so we're here at this little slough. It's getting really mosquito-y, unfortunately for us, but luckily for the, for the bats, one bat can eat 600 mosquitoes an hour, although another source says 1,000 mosquitoes an hour. Maybe that, right. that second source didn't like 
mosquitoes uh, as much or whatever, or maybe the, both answers are true. And all bats, all 1,472 species in the world, second most diverse group after rodents, mm. all bats are flying with their same hand that you and I have. Mm. So their wing bones and their finger bones, uh, our finger bones and their wing bones are one and the same. So bats don't get in your hair, they can see, you know, they're not interested in us, they're not gonna harm us, they're doing great service. Near here is the Yolo Bypass near Davis, California, and there are 250,000 Mexican free-tailed bats living in that bridge complex, and they are eating tons, literally tons of insects a night that mean that there could be organic rice farming in that floodplain uh -huh. and no pesticides because the bats are providing the pesticide Amazing. service. Yeah, the amount of money they're saving the farmers and the amount of health of the ecosystem that they're providing by mm -hmm. not, you know, they don't take so many insects that it depopulates it. They're sort of harvesting that surplus. And it means that we're not putting all that pesticide into the, into the waterway, into the system. It is true there is a thing called a vampire bat, but it's not here in North America. And it doesn't attack people anyway. <laughs> uh, if you're a very drowsy cow, it's going it's gonna to <laughs> land on your butt and take a little pinch of, a little pinch of blood. They exist, but they're not a thing, really. Right. Out of the 1,472 species of bats, only three eat blood. And two of those three eat bird blood. They find wow. roosting birds and, and Interesting. are and are taken that way. And then the vampire bat that takes mammalian blood, it actually approaches on the ground usually. So there's huh. a pig or a cow or a taper, you know, or a monkey or something sleeping. And it drops down near and then scuttles up close on very adroit legs and, and wing bones with thumb bones. Mm. And then super sharp, scalpel sharp incisors and hmm. then a anticoagulant saliva. You don't even know that you've been bitten. Wow. And then it laps up the blood and, and then departs. And the issue for farmers is the amount of blood is, is a trivial amount, but it, the wounds can get infected if you have oh, multiple sure. bites on a large animal. Mm -hmm. It's living in its own filth as, you know, as people raise their farm animals the wrong kind of way. So they, you know, that's where the reputation gets so, so bad. Mm. It would fit in the palm of your hand. Really? And if it truly, if you were sleeping in the rainforest and you had bared feet sticking out of your tent, which you'd get bitten by mosquitoes, why would you do that? <laughs> but if you did, it could land on you and bite your toe and you wouldn't wake up. If the, wow. The incision would be so adroitly done and the anticoagulant would be so. So you might notice, well, wait a minute, I, did I stub my toe when I huh? went to the bathroom last night? What happened here? That is um, And you'll ask me, how do I know what it feels like to be bitten by a vampire bat? Oh. <laughs> because, yeah, my, my colleague and I, Jose Gabriel, we, we do catch them in, to, for photography and with a permit in Nicaragua. And so I didn't get bitten, actually. He did because he had the misfortune to be handling the vampire bat the day it was, we were trying to do the photograph. But it's just reacting the way, you know, if you picked up a, a dog off the street, it's like going to turn around like, or picking up a cat off the street, yeah. like, meow, meow, let me go, I don't like it. Right. So the vampire bat's just like, hey, who are you and why are you molesting me? Yeah. And it just turned around and, and bit him. And he didn't even know until he felt the blood trickling down his arm because the bite was so uh, thin, wow. the incision was oh, so skillful. Goodness. So scalpel-like, and he's like, why is my arm all wet? Oh, it's my own blood, because <laughs> the bat bit me. Yeah, and then he dropped the vampire bat, and it scuttled away across the floor of the, of the little work area we uh -huh. were in, the little, the little shack we were in in Nicaragua. They fly to, to get around, but they prefer to, they're a very oh, ground-based bat. Huh. As Charles pointed out, vampire bats don't live here in California. The northernmost part of their range is in northern Mexico, and they extend down through Central America and about two-thirds of the way down into South America, into Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay. But what bats were we hearing on the bat detector and seeing swoop over our heads at the Casumnes River Preserve? That night, Charles captured four species on his bat detector. Yuma myotis, Mexican freetail bats, hoary bats, and big brown bats of which I think the hoary bat is the cutest because they're the fluffiest. 
And if you're as taken with the bat detector as I am, you might also be curious about other cool equipment that can help you interact with nature at night. Charles recommends a few things, like a good quality LED flashlight with a rechargeable battery and a headlamp that has the option for red light so it doesn't blind everyone you're with and make you lose your night vision. He also says that infrared scopes can be great for spotting animals at night, but that they're expensive and can also pick up things like rocks that have been out in the sun, so they aren't perfect for every situation. Two more items he recommends, a spotlight, which is a super-powered flashlight that lets you spot wildlife, including the reflections from their eyes from far away, and finally, a UV flashlight, which will make some creatures, including scorpions, glow neon in the dark. So this, of course, reminds me of what Griff Griffith said about Humboldt flying squirrels that glow pink in UV light in the Redwood Tree episode. And Charles even mentions those guys in his new book, Nocturnalia where he writes, We now know that there are mammals that glow in the dark, including flying squirrels in North America and the platypus in Australia. There may be more than just these. Nobody has checked in any systematic way. If you discover a glowing animal, let the rest of us know. And if you're hearing about all this cool gear and thinking, that's nice, Michelle, but there's no way I'm going out into the wilderness at night to get eaten by a puma. I get it. It's especially scary if it's not something you do all the time. But I would like to present you with some numbers. The Wilderness and Environmental Medicine website reports that approximately 177 deaths are caused by animal attacks per year in the United States. It doesn't say how many of those occurred at night, but I'm guessing it's considerably less than all of them. In contrast, Charles reminded me that almost 43,000 people died in car crashes in the U.S. in 2021. That's almost 118 deaths per day in this country. Charles will talk more about safety later, but I just want to say that nothing in the world is entirely safe. But there are almost always actions we can take to make things safer. And regardless of the time of day or night, it's always smart to go out with a buddy to make sure someone who isn't with you knows where you're going, to have a functioning GPS device, carry water, food, and a warm layer in your backpack in case your trip lasts a little longer than expected stay on the trail, and research the area where you're going before you go. Charles would add to that list that you should always carry at least two light sources just in case one stops working or the battery dies. So your safety is your responsibility and you should take it seriously. But you should also know that going out into nature at night is probably not as risky as the drive to get to that nature area. And the rewards of being there are great. At this point, Charles and I made our way down a dark path using his ultra-bright LED flashlight to look for creatures along the trail, accidentally flushing an owl out of a tree at one point, and soon arriving at a picnic table just off the main trail. We switched off the flashlight and let our eyes adjust to the darkness. It is almost well and truly dark now. Yes, we're getting very close to, to proper nighttime. Yeah, it's that time of night when you get the eerie silhouettes of the oak trees, which I think is my favorite time of night, because you can still see this is perfect for spooky season. Oh, We're getting right into spooky season now, and I'm loving the gnarled, these are, I think, valley oaks, hard to tell in the dark, but they look like the right shape, and I saw a lot of valley oaks earlier, so these kind of gnarled branches and leaves, and you're starting to see stars come out behind them, but they're still really starkly silhouetted against the sky. And... As we're sitting here, I'm just curious, Charles, how did you get interested in nature to begin with, but then also in what's going on at night? 
I was lucky that I grew up at a time when children were not very supervised. <laughs> and I don't mean that anything pejorative. It just it was normal, you know, be back by be back by dinner. You got mm -hmm. a bicycle, be back by don't get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> and be back by dinner. Yep. And so I grew up in Los Angeles along the Los Angeles River and so I could see what I call frogs. They actually were toads oh, actually, you yeah. know, but I, what do I know? And snakes. And I could go to the LA Zoo as a child without parental supervision. I just ride my bike there, pay wow. my 50 cents to get in and draw <laughs> the wild animals. I had a little pe pencil kit in my backpack and a little, you know, a little colored pencil kit and just explore. And then on Sundays, just like your guest Miguel or Donana, on Sundays I went to Griffith Park and we had a very cooperative neighborhood mom who would drop the kids off at one park and then we would hike and then end up at a payphone in Hollywood or wherever <laughs> on the other side of the park and call her and try to describe where we were and she'd come pick her very, you know, gracious, <laughs> oh, that's great. you know, gracious mom. Without GPS too. Yeah, I mean, this is all like, I, I don't even know how we knew where we were. We read the street signs yeah. and just try to figure out, okay, <laughs> we think we're in Hollywood, mom. Can you come pick us up? <laughs> and, oh, and, I suppose if my parents knew all that I was getting into and going into the culverts and kind of things, you know, they might have been a little more upset. But it, it was a different era. We were allowed to, to just encounter it. So I was lucky. But I ended up being, as you were, an English teacher just because things worked out that way. A lot of choices. I thought I'd work for the Park Service and it never happened. And, you know, I need, ultimately you need a job. <laughs> and I was actually working in university when I was undergraduate. And so I found I could get A's in my English classes faster than I could get A's in, you know, in terms of... I won't say that I wasn't reading the material and just faking it, but I might have been <laughs> just faking my way through those term papers. It was easier to do than I could do in my geology classes mm. or my geography mm -hmm. classes. So I just fell into English. But I've always been interested in nature the whole time. And then once I started birding, then that gets you out all the time. And you want to go to every habitat and every continent. Mm. So I, maybe I'm your only guest who has been to the South Pole. Oh, so yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll tell your listeners. I don't I'll, know if I know anyone who's been to the South Pole. That's, always that's crazy. fill out the little piece of paper. So I was in graduate school. I'd been living in my car. I'd had some yeah. hardships in my life, but I was in graduate school and I'd gotten you know, a job and I'd gotten an apartment and things were okay. But I wanted to go to Papua New Guinea to go bird watching because I just got into hardcore birding and there's no way I could afford to fly to Australia or New Guinea. So I thought I'll fill out a little piece of paper and see what happens. So I applied for a Fulbright in translation of tribal poetry, ethnopoetics. And as one of my professors said, he was sponsoring me, be careful, you may have to go. And so I went to New Guinea. And so that goes, you know, so I have, I have been to the South Pole because I filled out a piece of paper and went as an artist in residence, that kind of thing. Oh my goodness. So I'm always trying to balance, you know, being a dad and being a good spouse and being a somewhat good employee some of the time, you know, versus <laughs> wanting to be out in nature. And so I really wanted to not only do a, a book that writes about nature after dark, but show nature after dark photographically in new ways. Mm. So I do work with a fabulous person, Jose Gabriel Martinez Fonseca, and we take all this fashion lighting equipment to the jungle mm. because we want to wrap the bat. We catch bats in a net and that's a whole separate research project, but we have a bat in the hand and we take pictures of the bat with a macro lens, but wrapping the light around the bat with soft boxes oh. as if you were shooting a fashion shoot. And we do it wow. intentionally with the same equipment and the same, we actually look at fashion magazines. How did they oh. like that shot? That's really beautiful. Because oh kind of we don't want people to have that sense that bats are fierce. The only problem is like with bats in flight, they echolocate. When you release a bat, you cut it in a net and you've got the camera set up and you release it and take a picture. They're echolocating to get oriented and their teeth show. So it's a little bit tricky to get a shot where the bat looks normal, but it's not kind of like snarling because we read <laughs> teeth as aggression, even though they're simply right. opening their, you know, it's like when you're getting your dental cleaning, you're not trying to bite the dentist, right? You're just simply trying to get your cleaning. So sure. they're just echolocating, but their fangs are showing. So it's a little tricky on those.
I've seen these photos in the book Nocturnalia, and they are gorgeous. Charles sent me some to post on Instagram, and I'll put those up within the next week or so. Okay, so when you talk about night, when you're thinking of nocturnal creatures, how are you defining night? Are you including dawn and dusk, or yes. or what's your kind of definition? Yeah, I, of I'm very casual about that, and there okay. are the terms. We put them in the book even about nautical twilight, You know, which mm. is, there are terms that you need legally in terms of when the hunting day can start and when aircraft need their running lights on. So there are distinctions between civil twilight and nautical twilight and astronomical twilight, but they're irrelevant to the rest of us. Mm. If you're not actually in court trying to explain why you weren't poaching that deer that we just saw a few minutes ago. <laughs> and so I really think of night as the footprints that I see at 10 the next morning, you know, the mm. puma tracks that I've come across. Uh, I've seen Puma tracks four times this summer so mm, far. Wow. Uh, and so it's the idea that when the world is asleep, things are still happening and really interesting things are still happening. So, for example, we're used to thinking of hummingbirds as being pollinators. And of course they are. There's 350 species of hummingbirds in the world. So if you want to get pollinated, a hummingbird is a good thing to attract. But at the same time, if you're attracting a hummingbird or a, or a bee or a beetle or something, and you're out in the daytime, all the other plants in the world are out there in the daytime too. So if you want to actually try to have a little more singular connection with your pollinator, it might be better for your genetics to be pollinated at night. Mm. So now you've got a different shaped flower. It's white probably and kind of bell shaped and kind of large. And like if you're a saguaro cactus and they're entirely bat pollinated, that's the only way to have a saguaro cactus is to have a bat come to it. Being out at night is great because you're not wasting your water. You know, it's very high energy to put a flower out of your mm -hmm. out of your body, and 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 it's just like it is to make children out of your body, mm -hmm. mom. <laughs> right? I'm it's very, aware. It's very high energy, yes. and it affects your whole day and your whole yes. yeah, your that whole year. So, <laughs> so the the saguaro does not want to waste time making flowers that are going to wilt. So there's no point to having a flower out in the daytime if you're a cactus. Mm. It's really great. And then meanwhile, they have developed a, a really deep flower with a great amount of nectar. So it's, it's mm. energy. It, you know, it's, it costs a lot of energy to make this nectar. But the bat has this long muzzle and it's hovering and it has to put its whole head deep inside the saguaro uh, flower. Are there any other plants that stand out as plants that bloom at night? Any, particularly anything in California that you could think sure, of? Sure, everybody has seen this plant and they may probably know the name. It's called Datura. Is, it goes by the genus name, but it's also yeah. called loco weed or mm -hmm. jimson weed. You know, there's different folk names and it's a highly toxic plant. So we're going to say on the record here, nobody mess with this plant. <laughs> it has the reputation of being a hallucinogen, but it's mm -hmm. also a fatal hallucinogen. It'll be the last acid trip you ever take. <laughs> Datura is a member of the nightshade family, which is a family with a lot of toxic plants in it, but also some edible plants like tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, and potatoes. And while Datura is deadly poisonous when used incorrectly, it has been used medicinally and for religious purposes by a lot of cultures around the world. Some people even call it sacred Datura. In India, it's given as an offering to the god Shiva. And in North America, several indigenous groups have used it for ceremonial purposes. Does that mean that I'm telling you to go out and ingest this plant? No, it does not. But they, they really like disturbed soil. And so it's a low, it looks like a pumpkin, you know, like a, a domestic pumpkin vine yeah. with these big white showy flowers. And the flowers will last into the daytime and they'll be pollinated by bees, but it's primarily being pollinated by sphinx moths. Oh. That is, again, when you see a large white flower, it's easy to see in the moonlight kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So all the Datura in the world, there's, there's both old and new world species, they are night pollinators. 
I'll say that with a footnote. As far as I know, they're all night pollinated. Mm. You know, there's mm-hmm. maybe one in India that isn't, but I don't know. Anyway, the datura here in California that you see on disturbed roadsides, especially in the desert, but they do occur here in the Chaparral. I see them here in Sacramento. Yeah, yeah. right. You do see mm-hmm. them in the Sacramento area. So they are waiting for the for these large. They call them hummingbird moths. Mm-hmm. They're really a large size, you know, and they too have the this ratio of tongue to head that's astounding. The longest tongue of any insect is on a sphinx moth. Mm. So a little two inch moth can have a 13 inch tongue. What? And so it coils up just like a party favor or something, you know, oh like it, it, and the same thing with the nectar eating bats, their tongue coils in there. And then like a woodpecker too, for that matter. But you know, you really need to have a, a, a super duper kind of tongue. How we got a picture of, of a bat's tongue in my book was we went to Southeastern Arizona, Jose and I did, and we got the bats coming into a hummingbird feeder. And, and then we just closed that off and we had gotten test tubes and I made this elaborate false flower to put around the test tube, but yeah. then it fell apart. You know, I, I did a really <laughs> terrible craft job. I'm like, Etsy is not calling on my door. Like, make fake flowers for, for hummingbird feeders. Like that is not my thing apparently. The flower just kept falling off, but the bats are perfectly intelligent. They, they can see perfectly well. And they, they knew we had put the nectar in the test like, tube. We know what's going on. Yeah, and so they used to come and hit the test tube and they didn't mind. And so we had a flash and a oh macro set up. So you'll look in the book and there's a, in, in the book Nocturnalia, you'll see this great view of the tongue of the bat coming into a clear glass test tube yeah. that, that's clamped to the, to the little railing. And the tongue of the bat is covered in pipe cleaner-like corrugations. If you ever made oh, little, you know, yeah, little, little crafts yeah. out of pipe cleaners, that's identical to the, so when it doesn't hover like a hummingbird really great, it's, it's kind of coming to a, a stall, like an airplane kind of breaking to a stall, hits the hits the hummingbird feeder in less than a second, and then peels away like a kind of a plane leaving a dogfight. Uh-huh. And for those listeners who can't see me, my hands are doing the, <laughs> doing the motion right now. But in that half a second, the tongue has slurped up a huge amount of liquid and all the little rugosities along the, along the tongue of the bat. Wow. And so I just love the idea that I'm out looking at, and you can see the sink moths during the day sometimes, but typically they're nocturnal. Mm-hmm. And so I'm out in the desert and I can see these things and just to think, here's an animal that is doing a useful service, it's pollinating nature, but also it's just got this wonderful adaptation. And you think about how all the little twists and turns of genetics that ended up with that animal having that particular skill set, mm-hmm. so to speak. And we just think about the great, magnificent complexity of nature and then not just nasty little things to get around the porch light. The moths are actually doing something kind of cool and kind of interesting in their pollination. That's what I say anyway. Oh, I love it. And do you notice a particular time of year that you really like to be out at night seeing what's, seeing what's active? Unlike some of your listeners, I do live in the desert. And mm. so I like summers, but only in the evenings. And mm. that, and you know, obviously there are animals are attracted to warm roads, you know, cold-blooded animals are attracted to warm roads. So mm-hmm. I do actually have a truck that I drive at night in the desert and I actually have snake hooks in the back of the truck. So if I see a rattlesnake, I'm going to carefully move it off the pavement so it doesn't get squished and, it, mm-hmm. you know, and I make sure I don't get bitten. But both, both things are equally important, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? It needs not to get squished. Both yeah, we both, both <laughs> right. people need to do their respective kind of things. <laughs> right. So I just love and seeing the kangaroo rats and seeing the Milky Way, which in the Northern Hemisphere, we see the Milky Way best in the summer. Yeah. It's just the way we're oriented in, into space. And to know that I'm looking up at something that is millions and millions of miles across millions and millions of years old and yet infinitely beautiful. That's something you were talking about in your other podcast, right? Mm -hmm. Just the sheer gorgeousity, the magnificence Mm. of this spectacle. If you like to go see a waterfall in Yosemite, if you like to see the sunset on the beach, well, guess what? The Milky Way is equally interesting and moving and and deep in, in the terms of you're looking into deep sky, but also deep in how it touches your heart. So for me, I love summers and then that's when the moths are out and that's when the bats are out. 
that kind of thing. If we're going to go out at night in the winter, actually, you know, the coastal redwoods, it's cold mm. and it's drippy and, mm -hmm. and it's cool, but shrews are active oh. year round. I mean, they, they don't hibernate. Uh -huh. Deer are active year round. They don't hibernate. Raccoons, pumas, I mean, all these kinds of things. I think some of your listeners probably would like to see a puma, and I'm here to say that, you know, I've seen a few at this point. Uh -huh. And Jose Gabriel just saw his first one. Yeah, and I've really, never seen one. it's a matter of spending time. I mean, yeah. it's just like, how do you see birds? We go bird watching. Right. <laughs> how do you see puma? Go, you don't even have to go hiking at night. Just spend time in nature, mm. and then you'll begin to accumulate these kinds of experiences. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious about people who bird at night. Like, <laughs> talk to me about nocturnal birding. What is happening with that? What are people hoping to see? There are a hundred night jars in the world. And so for the re wow. listeners who are more plant people than bird people, so you know what an owl is, it's a vertical animal, there's 250 owls in the world. But there are these more horizontal night birds, strictly night birds almost mm -hmm. always, and they live on dirt roads, for example, and they are like fly catchers. Like if you've ever seen a black Phoebe in a park or something, they are sit and wait predators and then they sally up and grab a moth and then come back down. They could sit on fence posts and so on. So that would be like whippoorwills, poor wills, paraques mm -hmm. in Texas mm -hmm. and so on. And there's a hundred of those around the world. There's 250 owls. And then there are other kinds of things out there in night as well. There are potus, I don't know if you know that word, and frogmouse. So a potu is like a, kind of like a cross between an owl and a cat. I don't know. Whoa. It's, like, like it's got this huge. <laughs> Maybe I've seen a picture of this. Like big round, huge round eyes, just wow. immense round yeah, eyes. Yeah, yeah. And hardly any beak. You can't figure out where's the beak on that. Although if I open the beak up, it's like this great garbage grinder mouth. Of oh the, my know, the, goodness. And they I look think I've seen a picture of that. Yes, yeah. you put one, put great potu in the, in the, in the quieter notes. And they look like, during the day, they look like a, like a fence post or a tree stump or something. Oh my God. And at night, they still do too, but <laughs> their eyes reflect. Okay, I just Googled potu, which is spelled P-O-T-O-O, and it does not look real. Like, if I saw a taxidermied potu, I would be like, wow, what a weird mashup of variously sized bird pieces they've thrown together in this children's surrealist art project that I'm looking at. Because the eyes and the mouth in particular just do not align with other things that are real. I'm gonna need you to look up a picture so you don't think I'm crazy. And also look up night jars while you're at it because they're very cute. So when we had that flashlight we were using yeah. a moment ago, I could see a potu half a mile away oh easily. My goodness, you know, wow. as, along the edge, like along a river edge, or if there's a, a field in the rain, in the dense rainforest, they're a lot harder to come across. But here's, if there's like a road cut through a forest or some area where there's a natural tree fall because of a mm. tropical storm, oh, or you know, vegetation. it's kind of a little marsh or something, yeah. you scan the edge of that and you'll pick up the potu and it's got this great growling kind of call. And then the old world species is called frogmouth. A frogmouth. <laughs> the, the of the old, so potus are in the new world and frogmouths are in the old world. So there's owls, there are night jars, and then there's just these really bizarre things. There is an echolocating cave living night bird. What? And this is in South America. It's called the oil bird. Oil birds, because they're so full of fat, you can kill them and make a torch out of them. Oh, humans, I'm so oh, sorry to be one of them. Goodness. But anyway, the oil bird is a cave dwelling, night flying, fruit eating, aberrant night jar and even wow. night jar by the way because they, they jar the night is from the european term but anyway so like whippoorwills and poorwills are night mm -hmm. jars and, and so the oil bird of south america flies out at night and it's eating fruit it's eating little round figs and things coming back to nest and colonially roost in caves and they echolocate inside the cave <laughs> to get around like they're a bat they make wow. a little click 
that is cool. That is just to my mind, they're bright, they're sort of a bright red if you catch them in the torchlight. Uh -huh. Like, when I saw one in Ecuador, I was just so happy. Like, oh, I like, bet. You know, That's know, like cool. This is taking night birding way past yeah. just seeing the, the great horned owl on the edge of the city park, you know, uh -huh. that kind of thing. And then things like nighthawks. There, there are two in North America. Well, two regularly seen in North America, but lesser nighthawk and, and common nighthawk. And you'll see them around like a baseball diamond in the mm. summer. They're hawking insects around. You can see them on the Las Vegas Strip in Las Vegas that they're getting lights around the casino, you know, the moths around the lights around the casinos mm -hmm. or around the lights around a stadium. So they have a narrow wing like a kestrel and a little white wing flash and they're nocturnal and nest on the ground and blah, blah, blah. So why do birders go out at night? Because there's stuff to see. Yeah, <laughs> all kinds of cool stuff to see. Yeah, and then of course mockingbirds are calling at night, and, mm. you know. So in California we have poor wills and they're typically in kind of open rocky areas, but we also have whippoorwills and and they make this call that sounds like whippoorwill 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 mm. and they you hear them in kind of the the, the saw you know the country western songs you know are you so oh. lonesome you could cry you know this is the, this is the song of the whippoorwill and the hank williams kind of song i grew up with a randy travis song that has whippoorwills in it and i cry every time i listen to it it's just to my mind it's fun to hear them and if i don't see them that's fine but mm. you can you know if you drive a back road and shine your light along the side of the road you might see a skunk you might see a, a ring-tailed cat you might see a kangaroo rat you might see a poor will yeah and have you seen ring-tailed cats yeah ring-tailed cats you know are up at, you did a, a podcast on the sutter right sutter that's, buttes, yeah, yeah, yeah sutter buttes that's that's good for ringtail uh, yosemite right around mm. el portal the mm -hmm. town of el portal right when the road is going to leave the last hotel and go up into the park that little where the flat starts to climb along the river, that's good for ringtail. Madera Canyon in southeastern Arizona is good for ringtail. So I've seen 10 of them or whatever. Oh, wow, you know, cool. So they're not, you know, mm -hmm. I've not actually, I've been to Sutter Buttes during the daytime, but I haven't looked for them in there. Mm -hmm. That's supposed to be a really good place, right? Did, it is. I went on a trapping, a little trapping expedition, and we didn't catch any. Yeah. And I, I think that their numbers are declining, and they're, the researcher that I've been talking to is concerned about them. So we'll tell your listeners, if you want to see a ringtail, you go to the town of El Portal mm -hmm. near Yosemite National Park and look around at night with a flashlight or with a thermal imaging scope. It has to be nighttime, mm -hmm. you know, for the most part. Yeah, uh, so if you want to see one, they are gettable. And of course, I've seen yeah. them in Anza Borrego. And, you know, they are part of nature. It's just, again, right. people aren't looking. Yeah, and you have to know what to look for and be there at the right time. Yeah, and you have to see, them. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. I was out looking for kangaroo rats in Anza Borrego State mm -hmm. Park and down by San Diego, and it just... When I see something scamping around the rocks, I know what I'm looking for. It's got, oh, it's got a long black and white tail. Mm. It's got a good eye shine. It's very slinky looking. I know what that is. That's yes. a red tail. <laughs> yes. That's easy. <laughs> totally. I've got a few listener questions for you too. So Eric wants to know about outdoor lighting. And we did, I did talk about this a little bit in another episode, but I would love just, there's no problem with reiterating a little bit about this. He said, is outdoor lighting, for example, parking lots, street lights, security lights, harmful to nocturnal animals and insects? If so, what can we do to reduce the impacts of outdoor lighting on wildlife? And the answer was in your other podcast. Mm -hmm. And the real reality is, I like the idea of turning the lights off once most people are done with the parking lot. You know, at, at 12 at night, not many people are out mm -hmm. at the mall. We could dim the lights by half and we would, that would be doing good. And one issue about bringing bats in to like eat the moths around, you know, we could say, oh, look, it attracted the moths and then the bats got to eat the moths. But first of all, in the tropics, bats are eaten by other bats. Mm. You know, when they're flying around a porch light, they're actually very vulnerable to being mm. predated by a larger bat. Wow. So, that's, so it's artificially putting them at risk, that kind of thing. And it's changing their social profile in terms of how they normally interact with each other or mm. where they normally go to get water. I think the more we mess with nature, the less good it is for us as inhabitants of nature. We mm. don't know the consequence. It's like if I took 20 bolts out of your car, 
one of those bolts is necessary to keep the steering column intact, you know, right? <laughs> we don't know which bolt we're kind of removing. And to lobby, you know, lobby your city council. Let's mm. save some money. My taxes are too high. Let's try to reduce the lighting mm -hmm. we're using. So it's everything that was in that other podcast. And I'll encourage your, your listeners to follow the end of that. It's at, at the end of that episode, I think. But yeah, all the common sense thing. Point lights down. Don't turn white lights on. And you don't need, like, look, we're sitting here in the dark and we're doing fine. No yeah. one, no Pumas is eating. It's actually <laughs> lovely. Like, yeah. it's so it's, nice. It is so lovely. Mm -hmm. And no Puma has eaten us all evening. Right now, we're still here. Yeah, no rattlesnakes have come flying out of the trees and lashed under my nose. Okay, so Maya, I think it's Maya, maybe it's Mia, is wondering about nocturnal life in the sea or how nocturnal animals interact with bodies of water. Are there exclusively nocturnal animals that live partially or exclusively in the water in California? Yes. <laughs> Thank you for that question. And you, and, and you get into a really interesting, this has got a little bit of a complicated answer. So in the ocean in general, now we realize there's lots of oceans. It's a big planet, but, but in the ocean, the largest migration of all life on the planet happens every day in the ocean. Hmm. And what happens in the ocean is, of course, the sunlight's at the top, and that's where the things are going to photosynthesize. So we're going to have the circle of life kind of thing. we got to have plankton up at the top, in mm -hmm. the top layer, and then the things that are eating them, the things that are eating them. So the, the density of things we want to eat are up at the top. So if we're a squid, we'd like to be at the top. But we can't be at the top during the day because we're easily perceived by... Mm pelicans and albatrosses mm. and plunge diving boobies and dolphins. And so in the ocean, speaking broadly, there's a whole category of life hanging out in the dark about, we'll say 300 meters down, sort of 200, mm. so a couple hundred feet down. So sort of 500, 600, 700, 800 feet down, waiting for it to be night. And they know, they're photosensitive, you know, they can tell. So now suddenly it's night and this massive trophic uplift takes the elevator up to the surface to feed. Wow. And we're talking a quantity of life way beyond any old caribou herd in Alaska, any silly old wildebeest in the Serengeti. We're talking the entire ocean is coming up. And then, of wow. course, there are things waiting to predate those as they pass. There's things that are sort of mm. living at the sharks that are hanging out sort of 300 feet mm. level below <laughs> the surface. Because yeah. they, they're just waiting to snatch stuff as they go up and down. But so all the squid are up on the surface at night because that's uh -huh. where they're going to do their feeding. Well, then there are nocturnal dolphins. And we don't think of them as nocturnal dolphins because we only go whale watching during the day. Right. So you go out in Monterey and you will see the Grampus is one name for it, the Rizzo's dolphin, R-I-S-S-O apostrophe S. And they're interesting because they're white-ish, depending on the scarring and the age of the individual. They can be a very white, one's called Casper, even one, one oh, wow. the whitest one's called Casper, the Rizzo's dolphin. But they seem to be regular dolphins and they're just like, you just think, oh, they're going to eat a fish and they're, how nice they're all playing and socializing. There's the baby and there, there's some of them are doing the breaching and leaping up. Oh, this is so fun. I'm having such a great whale watching trip. They have the day off because they're feeding on squid all night and they're so successful at it that they can just lounge around during the day, splashing and socializing and doing oh their thing. And they're goodness. sleeping too, of course, as well. They're the pinnacle of Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> So to answer our reader, thank you for asking that question. Very astute question. So is there a nocturnal animal in California that is an ocean animal? Sure, the Rizzo's dolphin is really doing most of its feeding at night on squid that are, Rizzo's well, dolphin. you know, they can, you know, dolphins can go below the surface, but not nearly deep enough to find the daytime squid. It's not worth their energy to be way down there the way that the beaked whales or something are way down deep. So yes, there is a vertical migration of the ocean at night, wow. and that is causing 
animals to feed at night, such as the Rizzo's dolphin. And you can see these in, you know, you can see them during the daytime on Monterey Bay whale watching trips. I didn't know about those guys. I've got one more listener question. Rachel wants to know how we can best support nocturnal wildlife in addition to planting native plants. And I would say also, of course, we talked about light reduction. So right. is there anything else besides planting native and reducing our light pollution? Sure. I think that all of us could put a camera trap. Camera traps are pretty, mm. uh, these uh, trail cameras are called. A camera trap implies there's some type of lethality involved, mm. which isn't true. Put up, in, uh, you know, trail cameras have come down in price. Some are 30 bucks, some are, you know, 180 bucks mm. that are pretty good quality. But if you document what's passing through even a city park, the trail cameras have a little bolt. You can you can chain it to a tree so it can't be stolen or you can pick it up every morning. If you document what's in your backyard, what's in the city park, and just do a little newspaper article for your mm. local, you know, for the local community. If you're on a, like an email for all the people with ring cameras in your, in your little neighborhood or village, mm -hmm. just share the fact that there are bobcats or there are mm. coyotes or even skunks or raccoons. Most people are excited by that. A few people mm. are frightened or, you know, it's, it's going to harm me. Mm -hmm. I wish it would go away kind of thing. But really, most people are really fascinated to know, oh my gosh, there are bobcats right in our neighborhood. Mm. That is so cool. And that's just a trail camera will document that. So 200 bucks gets you a premium model and, yeah. and they take a memory card just like a regular phone or, or a regular camera. And some of them fancy ones, they can send the image to your cell phone. Oh, nice. So you'll get a little hit. Oh, a mountain lion just crossed by my backyard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the old fashioned kind, you go and pull the memory card out uh -huh. and, you know, and, and they run on batteries that last months. You know, nice. They run on, uh, in this case, I'd probably use the non-renewable, non-rechargeables. It's a regular lithium battery, AA battery from the store, and they last longer. So they're simple and easy, and there's, they run off a little sensor, mm -hmm. and you can set them up to have an infrared flash so there's no light going off. Nice. So low maintenance, low, it's super fun. practical, yeah. fun. And, yeah, and if you're worried about it being stolen, put it out at night and take it back, pick it up the next morning, sure. you know, or just there's ways to, to lock them to the tree. Or mm -hmm. one of the things that Jose and I do with, with our trail cameras is we have a little label that says this is not for hunting because mm. they're typically used in the deep south to know where the deer are so you can shoot the deer. Oh. And so people are sometimes antithetical, but it just says this is for wildlife study, not for hunting, mm -hmm. a little label on it call this number, you know, here's information about the study or something. We could, you could run a QR code back to your little website or something just to let people know. But in general, no one, you know, the odds of having, having it stolen are pretty small. Really. Put it somewhere a little discreet yeah. too, you know. All right. So we've touched a little bit on Nocturnalia and I wanted to just touch on that a little bit. So congratulations. That releases on 1031. So it's yes, a Halloween. Yes, uh, it's a Halloween publication. A Halloween release. Yes, thank you. My 19th book. So we're, 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 on our, yeah, we're on our way on that one. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about the breadth of kind of what the book covers and, and how readers kind of might have their perspective broadened by reading the book. I hope that the book can do a couple of things for people. And one is to give people permission just to go out even for a little quarter mile. We're actually not that far from the cars. No, you and yeah. I, right? We're having a great time. Yeah. No one's bothered us. I haven't uh, seen a soul. I mean, a human soul. Yeah, right. <laughs> And we might pick up some raccoons or something on the mm -hmm. way back. We're not quite done. Maybe see another owl or something. Mm -hmm. But to give people permission, nature belongs to all of us. Mm -hmm. And it's not that you have to go to Yosemite or stay in the Awani Lodge or you need this fancy thermal imaging scope that I have or these fancy binoculars. Just let it be. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, if you do nocturnal nature, it fits into our schedule a little bit easier because it is something you could do after work on a summer's evening. You could come to this preserve, for example, mm -hmm. it's allowed and just don't block the gate or get locked in. But I really want to encourage people to go out and feel like nature belongs to you. And then number one, and number two, nature is so interesting and diverse. If we ignore the nocturnal half, we're ignoring 
mm. too much of the rest of nature. Mm. And so we don't want to just let it be, oh, I saw a hummingbird, that's lovely. You know, or I saw a flower, that's lovely. But how about the other kinds of things that are out? Scorpions, they're fun to see. They're mm -hmm. not going to bite you. Just Even if you pick it up, it's probably not going to sting you. Mm. If you do get stung, it's probably going to be no worse than a bee sting. Mm. But just don't pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's simple enough. You won't get stung. They can't fly through the air. You Solve know, they're that not, not going to like hijack your car and like try to like, you know get in the passenger seat and wait and sting you later. Now, I've seen a lot of scorpions in my life and usually they just sit there and you just yeah. look at them and then you leave them alone and everything's right. fine. Yeah. Right. And take a picture with mm -hmm. yourself. You know, if you're using the black light, take a good picture with yourself. And again, your friends will be, you know, put it on Facebook, your friends will be impressed. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so cool. That kind of thing. And it's a great way to get children excited about nature. Find them, find a scorpion with yeah. a little $10 UV light. That's great. And then they're going to be, they're going to, they're going to love it. So the book is trying to do some science and talk about things like the way plants are using water at night and they're changing their physical profile. If we do laser beam studies of plants, they actually change their shape because they're mending tissues and moving water around. So I have a little bit of sciencey stuff I want to do, a little bit of astronomy stuff I want to mm -hmm. do, but really it's just an invitation. Let's go out and have fun. Yeah. And if it's not fun, don't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a picture of me in the book where we had caught these snakes in Texas in this river. And I just, I'm, I'd forgotten my waders. I just was in the river when my river hiking clothes. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, so what? I'm getting wet. Who cares? Yeah. Like, I'm an adult. No one's going to get me in trouble. <laughs> Sorry, mom. You know, you're in heaven right now, so you can't get me in trouble yeah. for being soaking wet. And we were just having such a great time. Yeah. Other than we were starving there. Some of there was a barbecue in the park. Like, we could smell the, the barbecue oh, cooking like we were yeah. so hungry. But it's just Go like, make some friends at that point. <laughs> the picture just shows it's just it's fun to have fun and yes. i don't know how to say that like it's real yeah. easy to be depressed and oh i got my taxes and oh mm. you know this thing in washington they're such clowns like forget all that mm -hmm. like just go out and look at stuff yeah now that time in in texas we saw a water snake eating an endangered leopard frog wow. you know it was actually swallowing the frog and the frog's alive it was actually the snake caught the frog from behind so mm -hmm. the head was gonna be the last thing that it, like do we let the endangered frog you know, wiggle it free like do we intervene <laughs> like what an ethical thing right yeah. and why are we rooting i like snakes why am i rooting for the frog all of a sudden i like snakes better than frogs yeah. but i felt oh this poor frog just got caught by the snake and it's going to suffer for five or ten minutes until it's devoured but right. it's just the, the circle of life but i have to say like it was interesting watching it, and it's mm -hmm. interesting confronting my own biases. Yeah. Why do I think that the rare leopard frog is more important than this mm. reasonably uncommon water snake? It's not like there are thousands of those all over mm -hmm. the place, you know? So I got to confront my own prejudices, even as I had this sort of exciting, strange, what do I do about it kind of moment, you know? I knew about the snake because a raccoon had made a rustle. I went over to see the raccoon, and then I found the snake. Then the snake caught a frog right in front of me. Like, yeah. this is all, hey, everybody, I'm an amateur. <laughs> I don't have a biology degree. <laughs> no one gave me a certificate. I just went out Right. decided to go do it. Yeah, and I think too, and I think you bring up a really interesting point because when we're in those situations, there's a different kind of self-knowledge that can come from that than maybe we're confronted with in our everyday lives. Sure, and I have to confront my fear if I'm afraid of the dark. What, what, who taught me to be afraid mm. of the dark? Why is that? Because as a, you know, I'm a reasonably good primate, I can see in the dark if I just mm. let myself know that. And also I have to think about what am I not doing in terms of my schedule? Obviously, I should have been grading papers or doing some you know, productive <laughs> thing and watching something on TV or something like society wanted me to do. So I have to confront all of that. And then when you're using a flashlight at night, it focuses your attention. So we talk about mindfulness a lot. Mm. You want to be mindful. Go for a walk at night with a flashlight. Mm. You can only think about what you see right in front of your yeah, light. That's a great point. You know, and, and I want your listeners to be cautious. Don't step on a rattlesnake if you're in the desert. Do be mindful about where your hands and feet are. So... You do need a light and have a backup light. We said that earlier. But at the same time, it's a really fun way to get the world to be less distracting and less mm. overwhelming. If you're on the spectrum, it's a great way to have just a narrower set of options mm. for what you're trying to process emotionally, spiritually, mentally, 
you can experience a certain kind of quiet at night that just doesn't exist during the day. Sure, you're lit by a very amount of small light, but I can see you just as well enough, and I think it's less distracting. We can just focus on our conversation. Right. All right, I have two more questions for you. One is, any myths that you would like to dispel? Yes, I want to say how safe it is. Mm. And I'll say this collectively. So we didn't say this in the podcast. I'll say it right now. I've seen a thousand mammals in the world. Mm. Right? I'm in the top 10 guys on mm -hmm. this, right? So I know the other nine guys who've seen more mammals than <laughs> I have, right? So collectively, I'll say literally we've spent thousands of nights yeah. in nature and none of us has been bitten by a snake. Mm. Now, I'll admit, some of my friends have come close. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. <laughs> and I do know people that have been bitten by rattlesnakes. One was working in her garden, you know, mm, like during the right. daytime. Right. But it is so safe. I don't know how to tell you. Like, and I have been, I've seen tigers and I've seen leopards and I've seen lions. And like, mm. it is true. Like, and I've seen polar bears. And like, it is not a bad, nasty world. It's actually mm. a very interesting, relatively benign world. Mosquitoes can give you malaria, mm. <laughs> so try not to get bitten by a mosquito. But in terms of our fear, like something's going to get me if I go out at night, that's mm. just balderdash. You know, mm. we really need to find a way to not get around that. Go do it. <laughs> go do it. And then, that's the, and that's then, the whole podcast. That's the lesson of your podcast. I love All it. Of your, don't be afraid. Just go do it. You don't need a lesson. You don't need a certificate. Just go do it. Just go do it. And by doing it, you become less afraid. Right. And you have fun. And if you don't mm -hmm. like it after five times, then don't do it. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Go to do na day nature is still fine too. Right. <laughs> you know, the butterflies are fine. <laughs> right. Also good. Also good. Okay. Last question for you. What about coming out here at night? Still takes your breath away. I'm reminded every time I come how much I get to learn, that I have the privilege of getting to learn yet. Mm. So I've identified the calling insects as cicadas. Mm. I could be completely wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just guessing that's what we call them. And I know it's a pretty large, complex group. I'm probably, you know, approximately correct. But I hear it and I like it. Mm. And I even think like if I was going to do a symphony and I wanted to include that in it and not just have like two sand blocks, you know, going against each other. If I was going to have piccolos and, and the violins, how would you even capture that in a symphonic mm. moment? There's such a rich texture of sound. And I don't know how to translate it artistically and I don't know even know what's creating it. I don't know what the life cycle of these insects is. So I get to confront my own ignorance, which is really an invitation to go be smart. And that's mm. so fun and, and sexy and exciting. Learning things is the sexiest thing we can do. Mm. Absolutely. And it is calm and peaceful out here. It really, and I haven't had dinner, but who cares? We're having a nice, <laughs> you're, you were kind enough to spend your evening with me. So this is lovely. Likewise. Well, thanks for coming out, Charles. Thanks well, thank for sharing you very much. With me. Yeah, yes. Appreciate it. Thank you. I'm going to try not to blind you while I turn this thing off. So get a buddy and a couple of flashlights, fill up a travel mug with something hot, pick an evening and go outside. Look for great horned owls at your city park. Or maybe you'll run into a possum or a skunk or a raccoon. If you're lucky, maybe it'll be a fox or a whippoorwill. Look for Rizzo's dolphins in Monterey Bay or do some nocturnal botanizing. Look for hawk moths on Sacred Datura or find a night-blooming cactus to admire. Whatever you do, open up your senses just a little wider than usual. Be just a little more still and let the sounds of the night wash over you. I want to thank Charles Hood so sincerely for giving me a whole evening to wander around a nature preserve and tell me cool things about the night, all while he hadn't had dinner yet. And I want to thank the Kasumnas River Preserve for allowing us to watch birds during the day and stay to watch bats into the night for this interview. Two more things about Kasumnas real quick. One is that if you do go, please leave your pets at home. And two, they offer a California naturalist course at the preserve. So check out their website, which is kasumnes.org. That's C-O-S-U-M-N-E-S dot org. 
to see the beautiful wildlife photos and learn about the California naturalist course there. And if you listen to the very end of the episode, you know that I always share some small drama or something mundane or embarrassing from my week. And this week, it's that I spent an entire afternoon around a lot of people with maple syrup all over my pants because it dripped out of my daughter's lunchbox onto me because I sent her pancakes to school for lunch. Oh, and there was an owl hooting outside on my neighbor's roof the other night. So I did what anyone would do in that situation, which is that I climbed up on my fence and hooted back at it, which sounded exactly like a human hooting at an owl and might have been alarming to my neighbors had they been awake. Okay, that's all. It's one in the morning and I didn't actually mean to be quite this nocturnal for this episode. So good night. I can't wait to see you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song and the Creative Commons license in the show notes.